we can keep open that passage, Matthew chapter 2, and particularly the second half of the passage, verses 13 to 23, uh, which Raymond read for us just now, Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. struggled somewhat to uh, come up with a title that would capture everything uh, that we would cover in this passage, because there's a lot in it. Um, I've gone with Messiah, the child of sorrows, and you'll be familiar with that passage in Isaiah that says that Christ was a man of sorrows. But as we'll see this evening, even from his earliest days, he was also a child of sorrows. When it comes to the story of our children's earliest days, what you actually find is that very quickly you forget uh, large chunks of it. Uh, As young parents, oftentimes uh, when Hannah and I have asked our own parents for advice, we've asked, what were we like when we were the age our children are now? How did you cope with us when we were acting like this? Uh, Our parents don't remember. In fact, already uh, when child two misbehaves in one way or another, uh, I sometimes say to Hannah, child one never did this at this age, did she? And Hannah replies, yes, she did. You just have forgotten already. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps we sometimes look back with with rose-tinted spectacles. We we tend to just pick pick out and think about the good times. It's probably good that we do that in many ways. But we maybe forget some of the more difficult times in our children's lives, or maybe even in our own lives in some ways. Well, in some ways, that's what tends to happen in a similar but different way. It's what tends to happen when Christians in our culture think about the childhood of the Lord Jesus. The fact is, of course, we really don't have a lot of information about his childhood. Uh, Mark and John don't tell us anything about it. And even what we do have in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Sometimes what happens is it, is it becomes heavily romanticized in the minds of Christians. <coughs> now, the way the story is told, particularly during the Christmas season, it would suggest that the birth and early years of Jesus' life were idyllic. Yes, there was no room in the inn, but in the Christmas cards and nativity plays and everything else, you have the child lying in the manger, you have the star overhead and the shepherds and Three wise men, because it's always three wise men in the nativity scenes, all huddled in, everyone smiling, happy, an Instagram-worthy moment. And of course, the birth of the Lord Jesus was a moment of great joy. It was good news as the shepherds, uh, her, <coughs> excuse me, as the, as the angels proclaimed to the shepherds. But Matthew also shows us that right from the beginning of the Messiah's time on earth, he was a Messiah that very few people really understood. Yes, there were the joyful moments uh, with the shepherds and the wise men and and so on. And yes, others would come and worship him uh, over the years of his public ministry. But for most of Jesus' life on earth, he was ignored. He was insulted. He was looked down upon. The world rejected him right from his childhood. And that's what we see in the second half of Matthew chapter 2 this evening. And yet, in showing us how Jesus was a misunderstood Messiah, Matthew also continues to show us how he perfectly fulfilled all that the Old Testament said that the Messiah would be. And in many words, the key, in many ways, the key word for this passage that we're <coughs> working through this evening, uh, the key word is the word fulfill. If you look at verse 15, uh, it says in verse 15, this was to fulfill. And a version of that word appears three times in the passage. 
The pattern of our passage this evening is Matthew relates an incident from the life of Jesus and then he shows us how it fulfills something that was said about Jesus in the Old Testament. And so there are three things we learn about Jesus from this passage, from this account of his earliest days. Uh, three things that we learn about him that fulfill what was said about him in the Old Testament. First of all, we see in this passage that Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. Look at verse 13. Now when they, that's of course the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Once again, God's word comes to Joseph via an angel and a dream. And God warns Joseph that the rage of Herod is rising and that Joseph immediately needs to take his family to the safety of Egypt. And notice, uh, just in passing, we don't have time to dwell on it this evening, but uh, at both the beginning and the end of the passage, again we see Joseph totally and immediately obeying what he is told to do by God. Now, Egypt would actually have been a very logical place for Jewish refugees to go to. It was only 90 miles away from Bethlehem. The, the border with Egypt, that, that is, was only 90 miles from Bethlehem. Bit of a trek, particularly <coughs> for a young family, but it was doable. And there was, in fact, a large Jewish community in Egypt, particularly in the city of Alexandria. We know, we know that from history. Uh, so Joseph and his family would have been safe. They would have blended in. They were beyond the reach of Herod in Egypt. But notice Matthew's comment on this incident. Uh, look at verse, uh, the end of verse 15. This, that is Jesus being taken to Egypt, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. <coughs> Out of Egypt I called my son. What Matthew does there is he quotes from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And he says, this, this incident in Jesus' life fulfills Hosea 11, verse 1. And we need to switch on here, and we need to show a bit of interest in how and why Matthew is quoting this verse, and in what sense he can possibly mean that Jesus fulfills this verse. It's always important to read any single verse of Scripture in its context. The words of a verse in the context of the chapter, the chapter in the context of the book, uh, and so on. And were you to turn to Hosea 11 verse 1, you would find that actually it's not first and foremost a prophecy about the future. It's not God saying that something will happen in the future. It's actually a statement about the past. In Hosea 11, God reflects on his faithfulness to the nation of Israel, despite their unfaithfulness to him, including, of course, his having rescued them out of Egypt in the Exodus. Israel is God's son in Hosea 11 verse 1. God called Israel out of Egypt. Having been enslaved to a tyrant, the Pharaoh, God came and saved them and, and led them out. And the human figure through which, <coughs> through which he did that was, of course, Moses. And then, of course, having rescued them, he entered into covenant with them, as we've seen in our time going through the book of Exodus and reading it. And he gave them the promised land and a future of their own with him. 
And what God did for his son, Israel, by sending Moses, uh, that served as a picture of what God was going to do for his people again in the future. He was going to redeem the Jewish people, the remnant (coughs) of the Jewish nation. He was going to send a liberator to them. He was going to send a redeemer to them. And he was going to cause his kingdom to come in a way that even in the days of Moses and even in the days of David, Uh, God's people had never seen. There was greater glory that lay ahead for God's son, Israel. And so when Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 here and says it is fulfilled in Jesus going down to and eventually coming back from Egypt, what he's saying, friends, is here comes the new exodus. Jesus, the true and better Israelite, is going to go through some of the same kinds of experiences that the Israelites of the past went through. Chased by a tyrant, removed from his rightful homeland for a time, brought back by God's grace and guidance to that rightful homeland with the tyrant defeated and dead. And not only is Jesus like that son Israel, he is like Moses, the liberator of God's son Israel. Jesus, as an infant, like Moses, had to be hidden, had to flee away and then come back to do God's work. Jesus is the one, like Moses, sent by God to show forth God's power and proclaim God's message and redeem God's people from slavery, not just to a human tyrant, but slavery to sin and Satan and death. Out of Egypt... I called my son. Jesus is the Israelite of all Israelites and he is the new Moses to lead Israel into true liberty and into the kingdom that God has prepared for them. The question, of course, for you and I this evening is, is Jesus your liberator, your redeemer? The Lord Jesus has provided payment for us to be liberated from Satan and sin and death. He came the first time into this world to ransom us, to pay the redemption price for us. It's a bit like in the, <coughs> in the weeks to come, probably many people are going to be given gift cards. And they have to take those cards and redeem them in the, in the shop where someone has gone already and paid the price for them. But uh, that, that, that offer is no good to them unless they take it in their hands, if they make use of it. Jesus has paid the price for our redemption, but we have to, uh, we have to turn to him. We have to, we have to receive what he, we have to hear what he has said. We have to believe it. Uh, Paul said to the, the jailer in Acts chapter 16, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Have you done that? Is Jesus your redeemer? The baby in the manger is not just the baby in the manger. We're not to just romanticize the childhood and the birth of Jesus Christ. The baby in the manger was and is the new Moses, born to liberate his people from their slavery and sin. You might say, well, I don't consider myself a slave of sin at all. That's where sin is so deceptive. It promises freedom, but in fact, it enslaves. A person who gossips, for example, gets a kick out of passing on the latest tidbit of information, the great 
feeling of being the one in the know. But over time, that sort of person leaves, uh, that sort of thing leaves a person bitter, resentful, and increasingly someone that no one else is going to trust. Your slavery leads to your misery. <coughs> Some people are enslaved to being the first to have this or that, always having the biggest or the best. And yet the satisfaction of making that purchase, showing off that item, it's very fleeting because in a few months' time, the new and improved edition will be out and someone else will get it and you'll be left bitter and jealous and discontented and waiting for the next big release date. Maybe, boys and girls, you've told a lie to avoid punishment for something or to make yourself look better. And at first, that seems like a great idea. Just say this now and I'll avoid the punishment. Then perhaps you have to lie again and again and again. And the guilt of it weighs you down more and more. And you realize that actually it probably wouldn't have been that bad if you just owned up in the first place. See, friends, sin enslaves us. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Matthew is telling us here that just as God sent Moses to rescue his people from the tyranny of Egypt, so now he has sent a new Moses, Jesus, the son of David, to redeem us from the slavery of our sin. Is he your redeemer? So Jesus is the new Moses. But the second thing that we learn from this passage is from these uh, difficult days in Jesus' childhood is that he is the son despised by Satan. Jesus is the son despised by Satan. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. This doesn't get, tend to get much attention in the more romantic stories that are recounted at Christmas. But this is what happened within the first two years or so of the life of Jesus. A madman slaughtered babies and toddlers. <coughs> now it is perhaps important to say that the number of children killed here would probably have been relatively small uh, and perhaps one of the reasons well uh, secular historians don't need any reason of course they never need much reason to doubt what the Bible says uh, but something that has happened over the years is that in Christian tradition uh, this event is known as the slaughter of the innocents and it tends to be magnified out of all proportion the suggestion is that Herod killed maybe hundreds or thousands of children. And then the historians say there's absolutely no evidence of that. It didn't happen. Uh, well, the archaeological information would suggest that Bethlehem's population at this time would have been less than 1,000 people. And so even taking in surrounding areas, uh, the number of children that actually were put to death probably would have been quite small, uh, maybe somewhere around the 10 or 20 mark of little boys aged two or under. Uh, and so that wouldn't be likely to make any historical records because, as I was mentioning this morning, Herod was guilty of far worse atrocities than that in terms of the, the number. But nonetheless, friends, this is despicable. 10, 15, 20, whatever the number was, this is 
horrific. This is horrible. We've heard some of the reports of things that have been going on in Israel and Gaza in recent weeks. Children caught up in conflict, children separated from their families, premature babies almost losing their lives. And, and it gets to the point where you just can listen to it no more because it's so horrible. But think of this, for this community in Bethlehem. Someone said to me, this, this is like Jesus' whole primary school class wiped out. Little boys murdered. And in a, a small, tight-knit little community, you think of the, the heartache that that would have brought to all those families. And murdered by who and murdered for what? A crazy old man, desperately clinging to power. As I said this morning, he was cruel, he was a paranoid, crazy tyrant. He's, he's around the 70 mark at this point in his life, and yet he's worried about a toddler taking his place. But of course, friends, what was really behind Herod, when you take a, a broad, wide lens perspective on it from the whole of Scripture, what was really behind Herod was Satan. This incident takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. He, that is the seed of the woman, God said, will bruise your head. <coughs> That's the head of the serpent. And you will strike his heel. There's this the warfare between the serpent and the seed down through the generations. Satan lashes out at the seed of the woman. Over and over again, he's determined to destroy the Son of God that is <coughs> before, <coughs> before that Son can destroy him. And so we find Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and 2 murdering the Hebrew baby boys. We come to the days of Esther and we see Haman manipulating King Xerxes to wipe out the whole Jewish nation. And we see it here when the Messiah is born. Satan, the dragon, as he was described to us in Revelation, is enraged. And these little boys, simply for being associated with the Messiah in terms of where and when they were born, they lose their lives. And the slaughter of little babies, friends, whether it's outside the womb or inside the womb, in this violent, despicable way, it is always satanic. It's always satanic. Notice though how Matthew once again draws our attention to Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Those are the words of Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And again, we need to do more than just pay at a passing glance and say, yes, we know Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is a turning point in the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's a point of, of new hope, <coughs> of fresh joy and, and reassurance. And actually, if you were to read through Jeremiah 31, you would notice that verse 15, the verse that Matthew quotes here, is actually the... <coughs> excuse me, it's the only sorrowful verse in the whole chapter. Listen to the very next verses in Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17. So after 
making this statement about Rachel, and of course, Rachel personified as the, the nation of Israel. Uh, but it says, after Rachel weeping for her children who have been destroyed, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In the context, what Jeremiah is talking about is the exile of the Jews to Babylon. Uh, and if you notice there in Matthew's quote uh, in, uh, in verse 18, uh, you'll notice the place mentioned Ramah. Well, Ramah was where the Jewish people were assembled to be marched off into exile in Babylon by their conquerors, taken away from their homeland, having been defeated, many of their countrymen killed. And yet in this moment of defeat, God also says through the prophet, there is fresh hope, there is hope for your future. I will bring my people back. Beyond these days of tragedy, there will be days of blessing. And so perhaps what Matthew is saying here, friends, with this particular choice of quote, is that <coughs> in a sense, the Jewish exile is not truly over. Days of tragedy and sorrow are still with them. They, there's no Jewish king, there's no real Jewish king on the throne in Jerusalem, free from the Romans, bringing in the sort of glorious kingdom that the people wanted. But there's still hope for the future because the Messiah has come, the one who will crush the head of the serpent and bring back the exiles. And yet the very events around the life of Jesus, the Messiah in his childhood days, show us just how fierce the spiritual war was that he came to wage. We have to remember, friends, that for as long as we're in this world waiting for the second coming of the Messiah, we are at war with a powerful enemy. You remember the imagery used to describe the devil in Revelation, that he is the dragon. In Revelation 12, there's that vision of the dragon pursuing the woman who was about to give birth to a male child. And the child is swept up to heaven out of the clutches of the dragon. And after the child is swept up to heaven, the dragon is even more enraged and he sets his sight on the woman who gave birth to the son. And the woman has to spend a set amount of time in the wilderness where she's pursued and yet she is protected and she is nourished. And that's all a picture, friends, of the church in this world. It was from the church into the church that Jesus was born. He finishes his work on earth. He's taken up to heaven. And what does Satan do? He sets his sights on the church left on the earth in this wilderness world. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, we're told, elsewhere in Scripture. He tempts, he deceives, he discourages. But the one who is with us is greater the one who is against us. <coughs> Toward the very end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 20, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan is a defeated enemy, friends. That's why Herod was in such a frenzy. Because he knows he's beaten. That's why the Muslim extremists in Africa or Asia the secular leftists in Britain, the communist dictators in China, that why they're all in such a frenzy today. 
attacking the church in one form or another, criticizing the church in one form or another. That's why Satan is busy sowing discord and disunity amongst congregations in our part of the world. He's trying to just disrupt and ruin as much as he can because he knows he's already defeated. And so may we not fall for his schemes and not be deterred by his roaring and raving, whether it be in our families or in our own personal lives or in our congregations or in our nation. God will soon crush him under our feet. And the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem is the one who will do the crushing. So Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the son despised by Satan. Thirdly and finally, and, and this will actually take a bit more time, Jesus is the promised but and misunderstood Messiah. Jesus is the promised, misunderstood Messiah. And what I mean by that, as we'll see in a moment, is that it was always prophesied, it was always promised that he would be misunderstood. We'll think more about that in a moment. Verse 19 relates how God, once again, in dramatic fashion, speaks to Joseph and tells him that Herod is dead and Joseph can take Jesus and Mary back to their homeland. But they can't go back to Bethlehem. Verse 22 tells us because Herod's son Archelaus is now ruling over that area. And history tells us that Archelaus was just as much of a head case as his father was. And so Joseph wisely decides not to go into the territory of Archelaus uh, to avoid his jurisdiction. But look at verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Once again, Matthew wants us to appreciate that the events of Jesus' life perfectly fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. But just where exactly in the Old Testament do we find those words, he shall be called a Nazarene? Well, you'll be searching your Bible for a long time before you find it because those words do not appear anywhere in the Old Testament. Notice Matthew says, verse 23, what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. This is the only time that Matthew says prophets rather than prophet. So this is the only time that when he, when he says that he is referring to the prophets, that he doesn't have a specific prophecy from a specific prophet in mind. What he's saying here is that this is a general theme of all the prophets, that he, the Messiah, shall be called a Nazarene. But we have another problem here because the town of Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament either. Not once. So how can Matthew suggest that the Old Testament prophets had said that the Messiah would be someone who lived in Nazareth when the prophets never even mentioned Nazareth? Well, this is something that occupies a lot of time and attention among the commentators. There's no obvious or easy answer, but here's what is perhaps the most helpful couple of ways to understand it. First of all, the town name of Nazareth sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for branch, the Hebrew word for branch is Nazar. And the word Nazar, branch, does appear several times in the prophets, particularly in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it's a symbol of the Messiah's coming. Listen especially, for example, to Isaiah 11, verse 1. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So a branch will come, a Nazar. Or listen also to <coughs> Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a righteous Nazar. So friends, Matthew is saying here, here is one of the themes of the prophets coming to pass in the life of Jesus. He is a branch. He is a Nazarene, the Messiah. Some of you might like that as an explanation. Some of you might not like that as an explanation. If you don't like it, here's another way of looking at it. As I said, the place name, the place name of Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth seems to have developed as a settlement much, much later into the Old Testament era. And it was never a very big place. And so by the time that Jesus was born, it, it, it's just a speck on the map. It's, it's in Galilee as well. And, and Galilee really, as we'll see going through the Gospel of Matthew, it's a backwater. It's, it's a part of the country that the Jewish elites in Jerusalem just wouldn't even think twice about. They just turned their nose up, up, up at it. <coughs> So when it came to what happened in Nazareth, or who was born in Nazareth, the world didn't notice, and the world didn't care. And perhaps, friends, that is exactly the point. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, come down from heaven, grew up in total obscurity. As far as the world was concerned, he was a nobody, living nowhere, Doing nothing. Is it not one of the more remarkable facts about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? About the Christian faith that, that the Christian faith centers upon a man who spent 33 years on this earth. And 30 of those, almost his whole life, living in a rural backwater, cutting and measuring wood in a carpenter's workshop. Paul famously says of Jesus in Philippians 2 verse 7, being found in human form, he humbled himself. And Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus humbled himself even unto death on a cross. But friends, his humbling of himself <coughs> began the moment he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And it continued for the rest of his life on earth. The God who needed no one, now dependent on the mortal body of a human woman. The one king who deserved to sit above the throne of every ruler on earth, forced into exile for a time by a crackpot who wasn't a real king at all. And then on his return, he goes and lives in Nazareth. Nazareth? Some wee speck on a hillside in Galilee, where the people are all a bit weird and no one really matters and no one's educated and, and no one's as important as the Jewish elites in Jerusalem. You remember the response of one of Jesus' very first disciples, Nathaniel, when his brother Philip tells him to come follow Jesus of Nazareth. John 1.46, Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Daniel thought the way lots of other Jews thought at that time. Surely this great king that we've been waiting for is not going to come from a dump like Galilee. But for those who have been really paying attention, this is exactly what the prophets had said about the Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And again, he wasn't just a man of sorrows. He was a child of sorrows. Jesus was a Nazarene. He lived in a nowhere place. He did a nothing job. He was a nobody as far as the world was concerned. And as Christians, we ought to remember that if ever we find ourselves feeling like the world owes us a bit more of this or we deserve a bit more of that. We live in a very entitled culture. The Bible tells us we're entitled to nothing. We deserve hell and the wrath of God. If we get anything else, it's pure grace. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, why should we expect ourselves to have a completely different experience from Jesus? The world ignored him a lot of the time. Why are we surprised if the world ignores us? Jesus had to work hard every day in, a, in the same place, doing the same job that the world didn't think was important. Most of us have to do that as well. The world hated him. <coughs> are we surprised if the world hates us? And why are we so concerned to fit in with this world that hated him? Why are we so concerned if it hates us sometimes? J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage in his great little expository thoughts on the Gospels, I would commend those books to you, but Ryle says, To have a place and a title and a position in society is not nearly so important as people think. It is a great sin to be covetous and worldly and proud, but it is no sin to be poor. It matters not so much what money we have and where we live as what we are in the sight of God. Where are we going when we die? Shall we live forever in heaven? These are the main things to which we should attend. So as we head into this season of romanticizing the Messiah's first advent, let's remember, friends, what his first advent really involved what his coming really cost him. He came to be a Nazarene, despised, neglected, misunderstood. And yet he was also, you might say, the Nazarene, the branch, the Messiah, the son of David, here to bring in a kingdom that will last forever, far after Herod the First, Herod the Great is long gone. And many other tyrants and enemies of the gospel have risen up and have seemed so impressive and they're long gone. The branch, the Nazarene, his kingdom will last forever. Will you have him as your king today? Will you take that offer of redemption in your hand, that gift voucher to end all gift vouchers that he has provided for us at the price of his own precious blood on the cross? And if we have, may we remember each day our Savior was despised, ignored, misunderstood. May we be content if in any measure it's the same for us.
May we rejoice if we're counted worthy to suffer to any degree in some of the ways that he did. And may we look forward to the day when the one who was born King of the Jews is recognized as King of all the nations. Amen.